It's blazing hot outside. You get in your car to turn on the AC to get cold air pumping, but it blows hot air out. This issue is commonly caused by low refrigerant due to leaks in the AC system. You want an easy, all-in-one solution that will restore the cold air in no time. AC Pro Recharge Kits. Make restoring cold air easy for even those with zero DIY experience in less than 10 minutes. Save time and money versus going to a shop by picking up an AC Pro Recharge Kit today. Be a pro with AC Pro. There goes a fly ball towards left field. Going back fast is Kennedy. Kennedy gets there, and he takes it. And the Cleveland Indians are the world champions of 1948. And this is Cleveland's team, a baseball history podcast. A regular look back at professional baseball in Cleveland from 1901 and beyond. Now, here's your host, Guardians team historian, Jeremy Fedor. Hey, Guardians fans, we are back with our podcast, and on this week's episode, we talk with former left-handed pitcher Scott Bales. Scott spent time with Cleveland from 1986 to 1989, and he bounced around the league a little bit in a pretty incredible career, so I hope you enjoy. Um, I have a bunch of other random stuff, so I guess to kind of start things off, you know, checking out your baseball reference, you are an Ohioan by birth. How long did that last, and how did uh, you know you end up in Missouri? Yeah, my dad worked for the Federal Bureau of Prisons in Chillicothe, Ohio, and about every two to three years they would have them move to a different prison, and so we moved from Chillicothe to New Jersey to Leavenworth to Colorado Springs to Springfield, Missouri, and that's where I went to high school, met Joanne, my wife and uh, made Missouri home, but born in Chillicothe. And what I remember of Chillicothe, and we still have relatives there, is you either worked at a prison or at the paper mill. Everyone worked at one of those two. Did it, having a dad in the prison system, was that uh, a benefit from parenting? I mean, was he pretty stern? <laughs> he, you know, my dad was a Marine, a warden in a federal prison, so, but at home, he was a pretty good dad, you know. He, I don't know if it was his chance to unwind, but um, yeah, not not any more strict than any of my friends or. So he, he he did a nice job separating prison life and home life. And when did baseball become your primary sport? Most guys grew up playing multiple sports. I imagine you were any different from. A lot of other guys. So when did you realize that, hey, maybe baseball is kind of my future? Um, I was I was never good enough at baseball where I thought baseball is my only sport. I got to, you know, I, I'm, I should be a big league ball player. That, that really never crossed my mind till late, late in the picture. Like you said, and, you know, I wish more kids would play more sports. And now even my daughters, I have three, they got pushed into picking sports pretty early, the ones they're better at. But I did wrestling, I did football, I did basketball, I did baseball, I did soccer, I did gymnastics. And I think that's what kids are missing now. Just, it's, it's not really cross-training, it just, your body gets, I think, prepared to do a lot of different things instead of very specific. And I think that's why, you know, I still work for the AA Springfield Cardinals in my hometown. And, 
these young guys, they're huge, they're built, they're jet, you know, they're six five and they are hurt all the time. I think they're so specific. Any movement they do outside of some normal baseball move, like a play at the plate, a weird slide, uh, you know, you slip while you're throwing a pitch. I think their bodies are in such good shape for baseball that they get hurt easy because their body, you know, we were just trying to figure that out a few weeks ago on a TV broadcast. You know, why are all these young guys that look like they look? And I don't know if anyone gets a chance to walk in a locker room anymore, but me and you would be tiny baseball players. Um, even in double A, they're just huge. So um, I, I wish they would play more sports, but they really don't. Um, so I played everything until I got to college, as many sports as I could play. And then back to the question, I, in college, an older guy on the team said, hey, I hear, heard there's a tryout in town for the Pittsburgh Pirates. And I go, did you get invited? He goes, no, it's an open camp. Anyone can go. Do you want to go? And I was like, eh, I don't know. I'm not really sure why, but okay, I'll go. So we went to this tryout camp for the Pittsburgh Pirates at a little tiny Evangel College in Springfield, and uh, there were about five people there. One scout, and he ran everything. And a couple weeks later, they called and they said, hey, we think we'd like to sign you. Didn't get drafted, didn't get a signing bonus, but I got a plane ticket to Bradenton, Florida. Yeah, that sounds like it's a, kind of a whirlwind of a, a situation. Uh, do you remember who that scout was? Or was it Gene Baker. I think he was an all-star for the Pittsburgh Pirates. Gene Baker would be, if he's still alive, probably 90 now. He, he was a tiny little guy. He was asleep in his station wagon when we got to Evangel. We knocked on the window, woke him up. He was asleep right across the front bench seat, and he proceeded to get out, grabbed a catcher's mitt. He was probably 65 at the time, and caught it, me and my friend that were both pitchers. Gene Baker, and, and then, you know, I struggled through a couple minor league seasons with the, with the Pirates and got thrown into a trade, the old player to be named later in an Indians trade for Johnny LeMaster. Do you remember how you heard about that news? I'm a manager's pulling into the office, or? Yeah, it, you know, it's a funny deal. This was all, of course, pre-internet, computers, cell phones, so after it all happened, I got called in. I was in the Eastern League in Nashua, New Hampshire, and we knew when Dale Barra got hurt as a shortstop for the Pirates, the Indians traded them Johnny LeMaster because Julio Franco had kind of taken over as shortstop. So Johnny um, gets traded, and it was just, you can have him. We don't want to pay him anymore. He's not starting and he was making over $100,000, so incredible money. Um, and for a player to be named later, and later it was shared with me that, that they got, about a week or two later, the Indians got a list of 10 players from the Pirates. Um, there were five position players and five pitchers, and um, 
all older guys that had been in the minor leagues a long time, no prospects on this list. And out of the five pitchers that they had to choose from, four were older guys in AAA, like 27, 28. I was younger and I was left-handed. So without ever sending a scout or someone to watch or ask for video, we'll take the left-handed kid that's only 22. And that's how I got traded to the Indians. And less than a year later, I was in the big leagues. And at that point, you know, Cleveland in the 80s um, wasn't Cleveland of the 90s. To you, was that, hey, it's just another opportunity? Or was it, I mean, had you ever been to Cleveland? Were you aware of anything going on? Um, I think we had, as kids, when I was in Chillicothe, Ohio, I think we had come up to do something at the lake once. Um, but I don't remember going to a ball game at the old stadium. Um, when you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. So I didn't really know much about Cleveland. I felt comfortable being in Ohio because I was born here. And a lot of relatives started showing up, I remember, in 1986. But, um, yeah, I don't, I, it, it was always just a good fit for me. From the minute I got here, A, I never expected to play in the big leagues. So to be here, I thought it was as great as any place in the world to play baseball, you know. I didn't know about Yankee Stadium or Dodger Stadium or Wrigley Field. I just knew out of nowhere I was in the big leagues. And, and then I proceeded to probably have some of the best years I'd ever had in 86 and 80, my first two years. So loved it here. And you only, I think it was 13 games in our minor league system or something of that nature because by 1986 you were on the opening day roster and uh, your first game – and it's funny because I go through these articles and Hoinsey wrote them all and Hoinsey's still uh, Around. still plugging away. And I don't know if you remember your Major League debut in Baltimore and what happened. Uh, are you able to recall that or is it? The way I tell the story, I, before the game, well, the day before the game, we're in Tucson, Arizona. And I had already been sent to minor league camp. There was no room on the roster. I wasn't on the... 40-man roster, the 25-man roster. We had three left-handed pitchers, older guys, and so they had already sent me down. Well, they called me back over just to sit in the bullpen for the last game in case it went into extra innings because they used to just finish the games. Now they'll just stop them. But, so I go in there, and they go, hey, um, we've made a couple moves. You're going to go with us. This was Joe Klein, the GM, and Pat Corrales. They go, you're going to go with us. And I, I kind of went, you know, just kind of confused with the conversation. I go, where? And they, they said, you're going to go with us to Baltimore. And I said, for what? Why? They said, you made the team. And in my mind, there was just, you know, I wasn't on the 40-man roster. I wasn't on the 25 There's no way. And they said, yeah, we released two left-handed pitchers. And you're so I went back to the minor league complex, got my stuff, came back to High Corbett Field, 
took a shower, got on a, on a bus, went to the airport, flew to Baltimore, and the next day was opening day, and see how bad I am at recalling this. Before the game, Pat Corrales and Jack Aker, our pitching coach, went through your, you know, Tom Candiotti, your number one starter, Phil Necro, number two, Ken Schramm, number three, maybe John Farrell, number five starters, in the bullpen, Ernie Camacho, you're the closer, you're this guy, that. And they get to me and they go, and for the first couple of weeks, Bales, you're if we're 10 runs ahead or 10 runs behind. Exact words from Pat Corrales. I go, okay. You know, I was still, couldn't believe I was in the big leagues wearing new uniforms and new clothes, and the minor leagues use, use stuff. So I am, um, I'm sitting there, it's, sold out opening night it's 35 degrees snowing they didn't have heaters in the bullpens or jackets it was i was cold and they called i think ken trump pitched that night pitched well got into the sixth or seventh inning with a lead and uh maybe eighth inning and they called down to get jamie easterly the veteran left-handed reliever up he got up through two pitches and told the guy, my arm's bad, I can't throw. I guess he'd had a sore arm all spring training, but your contract's not guaranteed till you're on the opening day roster. So he just didn't tell him. Just kind of faked it. And he had been in the big leagues 10 or 12 years, so they let him. And so there's a long pause and they go, Bales, you get up. And all I can think in my head, no, it's not 10 runs ahead or behind, I don't know. But I warmed up. Um, they opened the gate and I was just froze. I looked up at a stadium. I had never pitched in front of more than 500 people in the minor leagues or in college or in high school, anywhere ever. And I look up to 35,000 sold out crowd in old War Memorial Stadium to run in and face the guy that I used to wear his number, Fred Lynn, because I thought I was a really good left-handed hitter and really good center fielder, and he was kind of my idol, and I'm running in to face him. First batter I ever faced. Walked him on four pitches. Is that right so far? Well, it says Dickie Knowles actually walked Fred Lynn, then you walked Mike Young. Mike Young, they pinch it. Fred was already on Fred was there when I started warming up, so that clears it up a little bit. I don't even know who Mike Young is. But then I do know I struck out a couple guys. Yeah, struck out John Shelby. Yeah. Now, did they save the ball back then? Do you have that ball? No, I do not have that ball. And then Rick Dempsey flew out to left. And then Juan Bonilla. The next inning, wasn't it? No, this is all the same. All the same inning. Yeah. Right field in old War War Memorial Stadium came way in. It was probably 265 where it curves. And I remember throwing him a pitch, and I didn't know who Juan Benilla was either. So I just threw him, and he's a right-handed hitter, and he just kind of went, you know, reached for it and took a half a swing. And I think Joe Carter was in right field. He kind of stood there like he was coming right to him, took a couple of steps, steps, wind's blowing out, hits off the wall, everyone scores. Yeah, it's exactly what the, you know. Blown away. Blown away. And so I thought it was over, Bale said. I was almost in the dugout because Joe's first two steps were in. And I turned around and saw Joe running back. I saw the look on his face, and I knew it meant trouble. And uh, it's, a, it's a heck of a way to. It was a uh, tough. Yeah, and again, ice cold at Memorial Stadium. So, yeah. It was so brutal. 
Now, were you able to get family to that game? I mean, no, I, I found out the night before I was going there. No one was there that I knew. Um, but the best thing about Pat Corral is he said, hey, he called me in that night. He said, hey, you made good pitches. Um, you can't walk guys when you come in a game, but you're going to get more chances. And I think at the All-Star break, I was second or third in the American League in appearances. So he stubbornly kept running me out there. I think at one point they mentioned you were on pace for like 80 games, and then you ended up in the 60 appearances. Yeah, I started because I started some games in the second half. And, yeah, you have it right there. I mean, you know, they say you can't walk batters up here on the right. You said, you know, <laughs> Pat put me in that situation. It's going to help me. Um, so what was Pat like as a manager? He was great. Yeah. He, you know, and you look at him from the stands, he looks like this tough old guy, Indian heritage. You hear rumors from his playing days. He was a feisty. He'd fight anyone. And he was just great. He was great. And... You know, we had so many young guys on that team, and I don't know if that's something he had to just learn how to deal with that many. It was kind of the start of, you know, decades of just really bad Indian teams, and they finally, I think, just said, bring up all these young guys. What's going to hurt? Um, and we'll see if we get some major league players out of it. So, And then they moved to the new stadium, and, you know, the rest is history, how well that ended up for them. Was there anyone that you kind of took you under their wing when you got up here, and a mentor? I mean, you had Negro on the team, he seemed like. I mean, in appearance, looked like the, the fatherly type. I yeah. Um, Negro came in for a year, but, you know, for me, the, the guy that kind of monitored the clubhouse about how you acted on and off the field was Andre Thornton. And I know Andre's still around town here. Um, he just a, a great guy to watch and emulate the way he is on the field, the way he is off the field. Just a, just a great person. And, you know, I didn't, we were all so young. He was one of the few, you know, the veteran guys were like Pat Tabler and Brooke Jacoby and Joe Carter, and they were 24, 25. They were our veterans except for Andre Thornton. Now, do you remember your, your first win, which wasn't too long after your uh, debut? Was it against Detroit? Against Detroit. Came in five and a third innings. Of in Detroit. relief. Yeah. Now, what was it like pitching in the stadium in the lake? I mean, you know, there's there's times where it could have 50,000. There's times it could have 5,000, even less than that. Yeah. Was it? Wow. There times like right. That. That's when I print out that picture because you can look at that and it's just seats. I mean, you could probably give a foul ball to everyone that day. <laughs> um, it was a great place to pitch. It was a huge stadium, um, and he, no matter which way the wind would blow, it really didn't because it was so high compared to most baseball major league stadiums. I that roof up on the third deck actually went up too, so any winds just kind of. I mean, there was just never occasional little gust off the lake, and you can see it in that picture, but that would usually be helping a pitcher, not hurting. So it was a great place to pitch and learn how to pitch. And sometimes opening day and 4th of July, you might pitch in front of 65,000, and then um, other days in April and May, you might pitch in front of 3,000. And you were right that like 
precipice of the new wave of ballparks. So, I mean, did you know any difference from the amenities there to like other ballparks that may have been a little more top notch? Because Baltimore is about to get one, Chicago, you know, us. And- yeah, once we went around the league once um, and started seeing some of the new stuff, you knew how old and antiquated that stadium was. But when I first got it the first month or so, I was just thought it was the coolest stadium in the world. And one thing I found that was interesting, I think, and just a random piece of trivia, you actually pitched in the last tie game we ever had that went into the record books as a tie. That was August 26th of 86 against the Blue Jays. Uh, you can see a little uh, newspaper article there because it rained out, and then all the, the stats kept, but then they made up the game the next day or something of that nature. So it, Did we finish it the next day? I think they started uh, 1 through 9 again. I think it was just a whole new game, but the stats kept On our same. record, we had a tie. I don't remember yeah. that. Yeah, yeah. Last time there's been a, a tie, it was 86 that game against the uh, the Blue Jays. So random uh, uh, trivia. So yeah. You mentioned your, your number, 43. Um, what was your, your reasoning? Was it something I gave you, or did you pick your number? No, it was, um, I asked, growing up, my favorite player besides Fred Lynn, uh, but from like five years old, was Mickey Mantle. And he was number seven. And when I got to Cleveland, they said, what in the minor leagues, you, they just hand you a jersey. You had no say-so. I think now in AA, you can pick your numbers. But I said, how about seven? And they said, that's not a pitcher's number. I said, why not? And they said, well, it's just not. What other number do you, side by neck, what other number? And so I came up with four and three is seven. I still kind of get my seven. So that's how I became 43. And I, I used that my whole major league career, four years in Cleveland, three years with the Angels. And then when I went to Texas at the end, Someone had 43, and I actually had more time in the big leagues than they did, and they said, do you want it? And I said, eh, let me try something new. And I just had the clubhouse guy give me a number, and I think they gave me 58. But it never quite felt like 43. And your first year, it sounds like they were trying to figure out, are you going to be a reliever, are you going to be a starter? How did that, I mean, you just kind of went with the flow, and if they wanted you to start, you said, yeah. okay, I'm going to start? Yeah, I, I think as part of the reason I was able to stay in the big leagues, even through some years that weren't very good, because I would do, I didn't say, I'm a starter, I'm a short reliever, I'm a closer, I'm just, let me pitch. And so I think that helped a lot, and then I did it in 86, I did it again in 87, and then uh, to this day, the guy that I said ruined my big uh, free agent payday was Buddy Black. We traded Pat Tabler to the Royals, and, and Pat's going to be here next week. Um, so Pat's part of the ruining of my career, too. You can tell him. Um, so we get Buddy Black. I was starting at the time and doing pretty well. I think in 87, I was 9-14 and 14 on a team that lost 100 and some games. And I, I easily could have had 14 or 15 wins, you know, just not scoring runs, not playing well. I think that year was better than my first year. But when Buddy Black came, he was 30 years old, had been starting in the, with the Royals, won a World Series. Um, he goes in the rotation, I go to the bullpen. And I think that's the last time I started. So, I, you know... 
if I started that year and maybe one more and then you go to arbitration, that's how you end up getting into some decent free agent situations. Um, so it's Buddy Black's fault. So enter that historical Because he, he actually came here and pitched two years. Not great. Um, I want to say he was a few games under 500. But started two years and didn't miss any starts. And then San Francisco gave him like a three-year. At the time, it was a big deal, like $12 million. Now that's a good year, maybe. And one thing when I mentioned to Hoinsey that you were coming up, he mentioned you had ulcers from, uh, was that stress-related? Was that? Uh... I don't know. We don't know what it was. Um, we were living on the... Was downtown that way. There's a couple high-rise apartments Lake right Wood. on the water in Lakewood. Yeah. One has a purple W on it, Winton Place. We were living there, and like I said, by the All-Star break, I was, what's the date of that? This one is uh, July 30th. Yeah. So just got to the All-Star break area. I pitched in 40 games already, more than I'd ever pitched in a whole year by far. And my um, elbow was kind of getting sore. And I, as a rookie, I was afraid to tell anyone. So I had gone from sneaking in the training room, taking two aspirin a day in April, and then taking four a day in May. Then I was taking handfuls of these aspirin in July, June and July. So I didn't have to tell anyone my elbow hurt. And I could pitch. Um, and it, well, one day I just thought, oh, I kind of got an upset stomach and I went to go to the bathroom right before I was coming to the ballpark and a lot of blood. And I didn't know, we went straight to the ER. Um, they put a tube down, look around. I had two little bleeding ulcers, which means all those aspirin just had kind of worn a hole where blood was, you know, coming out of your stomach. And, um, <laughs> and the funny thing is, I felt terrible because I missed the game that night. The next day, I came to the ballpark, and Pat Corrales goes, what are you doing here? You were in the house. I said, I feel fine. He goes, can you pitch tonight? And I go, yep. And I pitched that night, 24 hours later. And they had to go in, and, like, they, I don't know what they do to. Cauterize it or something? Yeah, they burn them or they do something to keep the bleeding out. So I pitched 24 hours later. But it, it was just too many. I don't think it was the stress as much. And then, you know, 87 team, Pat ends up getting fired. I think it was midway through the season. Was that kind of hard for you? Or was it just part of the game, just to know, you know, new manager, baseball role? It was hard. It was hard for me. He was, you know, he's the first guy that took a chance on me and took me to Cleveland in 86 and pitched me all through 86 and 87. And, so it was different, but Doc Edwards, everyone loves Doc. And, you know, it, it's not like he was a stranger to the organization. Everyone knew him from spring training and from coaching. So it was easy. And he was more of a kind of a pleasing presence, you know, Doc. He wanted everyone to get along. He wanted everyone to like him. He, he liked everyone, no favorites. And so he was good, but um, Corrales was kind of my guy and then that 88 seasons it's interesting I mean a you have that that group of players ended up going being managers with Tito on the club and and all that and you actually had your, your first complete game shutout 
and that was the home opener and we were talking about the old stadium 58 or 53,000 fans so I imagine that's probably the uh, the biggest crowd you ever pitched in I mean that that ballpark could hold people I don't know if you have any recollection of that home opener yeah. back in uh, in 88 I probably can recall that one game more than any game in my life um, a, we were all really young still, you know. I was maybe 24 by now. And um, and we had pitched in front of those kind of crowds in Cleveland, like on 4th of July and opening day. Um, so the la- so by 89, um, I, I only pitched opening day because it was the fourth game of the year. We left spring training, went to Texas for a three-game series, and then came here. Um, for opening day and I was the number four starter so it just worked out and I remember all spring training I knew I was number four but I never really had done the math when I was going to pitch and I thought why so on the flight to Cleveland from Texas I thought opening day that's going to be a big deal and we had all had me and John Farrell and Rich Yett and Candy Adi had had good spring trainings and were expecting a lot and and um, went out there and I remember I think in the first inning one or two guys got on base and maybe Eddie Murray hit into a double play by hitting a line drive or something. And so that could have gone bad early in front of that crowd. But after that, I just was in a groove. It was the most like tunnel vision focus I've ever had. I mean, it was, it was a weird thing. And I don't, I always wanted to get back to that feeling. And I don't think I ever, did to that level again. Um, and by the sixth inning, seventh inning, you know, I'm thinking, you know, before the game they said, you know, according to the number of pitches first start of the year, you'll probably go five or six innings. And then I wasn't going to say anything, and I kept just running in and sitting down. And, and, um, and I remember at one point, John Farrell came over to me, and I don't know if you're allowed to cuss on this. Yeah, I don't sure. know where they Go use it. it. He comes over and kind of grabs my head, and he goes, finish this thing. And he had that kind of mentality all the time. I was more kind of, oh, whatever happens, happens. But he, and I remember thinking, I think I can do this. And by the ninth inning, um, I think I got to, it was loud. And I got one out, and I got louder, two outs. I think here comes Fred Lynn again. I think I struck him out to end the game. I have to look that one up. Is that in there? No. I struck out Fred Lynn to end the game. I'll have to Google it after a fact check. And each pitch to him, I throw the pitch, and everyone, 58,000 people are standing, or 53,000 are standing, yelling um, for an opening day shutout. They don't happen very often. I could feel sound on me to where like you had to kind of almost lean forward there it was that loud that many people screaming and i thought this is the coolest thing i've ever felt in my life and i struck him out and it was just like it hit you again and so that was um i i have great memories of the old stadium when uh when T- I think Tito came in halfway through that season, uh-huh. did you remember you know anything about him as a player? Yeah. Or? he was in spring training um, with us. I think he'd come over from the Reds, and I saw him on his scooter yesterday too, driving downtown. <laughs> it's very funny. 
So he comes, you know, and I think he'd had a decent couple years in Cincinnati and hit decent, but for some reason came to us as a non-roster invitee and had a pretty good spring, but there wasn't room, so he went to AAA. Then he came up during the season. Great guy. Just funny, quirky, um, just like he is today. Um, quotable. He, he's a good guy. He And I think he didn't stay long and got into coaching pretty quickly. And you know, with his roots, that makes a lot of sense. Looking back at that team, I mean, are you at all surprised of how many of those guys ended up going into managing? I mean, Ron Washington, Bud Black, Charlie Manuel, I think was with the club. John Farrell. Farrell. And Charlie uh, Manuel. Tito. Is that a surprise? Or would you have, looking back at it now, hindsight's twenty twenty, but We've talked about that, and we thought for a really bad team for a couple of years, we made some really good managers <laughs> So yeah, it's it, they're all good and and Brooke Jacoby was a coach in the major leagues for 20 years and Pat and Corey Snyder has coached forever. Swin Candiotti's still in baseball doing radio. Julio might still be playing. Julio could be playing in the Taiwanese league. One thing about the 88 season too, I don't know if you would remember, but I'm a big fan of the movie Major League, and they had Charlie Sheen and Tom Berenger came to a game then, and they also did some of the overhead filming towards the end of the movie during the July 1st game. Is that anything that rings a bell? Oh, yeah. The night before that filming, and most of the filming was done in Milwaukee because of union rules. I think it was friendlier there, but they wanted to get a... um, They wanted to get the... uh, overhead scene of that stadium packed so i think they filmed it was it on july 4th july 1st july 1st it was a three-day yankees they knew so they told us midway through the game well the night before charlie sheen had been in our clubhouse met everyone took pictures with a bunch of guys and charlie's like hey you guys you know you're gonna go out tonight we said yeah we'll go out tonight you know it's young we're up for it. We go out. He got kicked out of two different bars, one thrown out by bouncers. He's a little guy, and he once he had a few too many drinks, he was obnoxious and wanted to fight everyone and wasn't doing very well. So we got him back to the old Hollanden house, and we then we went home. But the next day, they're back in. They're in their uniforms, and they said, hey, after the third inning or fifth inning, Everyone stay in the dugout, go in the clubhouse, and if you're in the bullpen, stay underneath the roof. And um, they ran out all the people in our uniforms to the positions, and I remember how unathletic a lot of them looked is what we all thought. But So the helicopter starts coming around, and I, I don't know if you can see the movie, but me and Richie yet, another reliever, you know, they were they had two people in our bullpen saying stay back where you couldn't see them because if you're in it, they have to pay you somehow. And me and Richie kind of kept going, leaning out, waving with the helicopter. And I don't know if they cut us out of the scene, but we were trying to get into the movie. Did a lot of you guys go see that movie when it came out? Oh, yeah. Everyone did. And no one rushed to be number 99 in the bullpen or anything like that? <laughs> nope. or? No. No. But it's cool, and it's cool that it you can still flip around TV, and it seems like it's always on somewhere. Best baseball movie uh, yeah, out there, I'll good. say. 
Um, so your Cleveland career comes to an end. January 9th, you were traded, 1990. Do you remember, again, That was, was that blindsiding, or was that just kind of new? It was blindsiding. Blindsided. I thought I was going to play 10 years in Cleveland, and that's what I wanted to do. And they had fired uh, Dan O'Brien, our general manager, after the season, but I didn't think that affected me. Well, he became the GM of the California Angels, and he traded for me. Uh, shockingly, two players for, for me. Um, one was Jeff Manto, who played AAA big leagues, and he played in Cleveland, too, a little bit, uh, the White Sox, and he had an okay career. And, and the other guy was a pitcher, that a left-handed pitcher named Colin Charland, and he never, I don't think he ever pitched again. So it was a good trade, but I, I just never felt like California was home. Um, it became a job, so that was kind of sad. Now, you, you did have two opportunities to come and pitch at the ballpark here. I made sure I looked that up, and I imagine, like, you guys probably heard the rumblings of a new ballpark. I mean, I'm not sure, I forget what year the ground was broken here, but, you know, to go from Municipal Stadium then to walk in here in 97 and 98, I mean, how do you remember your first take on, on that, getting back here? Yeah, it was, it's like, wow. You know, I still think of this as the most beautiful park in, base, in baseball. I, I had the chance to play in Texas, where in 86, 87, we were in that terrible old AAA stadium, but it was, they just kept adding rows of bleachers to make it a major league. Then they built Arlington Stadium, all brick, beautiful, and that's where I played. And it was built about the same time as Progressive Field. And they've now gone to another new stadium with a roof, they say it's too hot, and I don't like it near as much as the old one. So when I came here, it's so nice. All the amenities, big clubhouse, big locker rooms, big cages. We didn't have any indoor cages. We had like two in center field under a garage. Um, so everything was better, but it, A, I was coming in with another team, so it just never felt quite like that place did to me. Your two outings here, though, were pretty uh, fun to check out. August 8th, 97, you had Manny Ramirez to fly out, Tommy walked, which makes sense, Tommy walked, then Walking. David Justice lined into a double play at first, then May 15th, 1998, it was a 14-inning game, Lofton grounded out, Vizquel popped out foul, David Justice singled, but he was thrown out going to second, and that was Very the, nice. and then you went in the 11th inning, you struck out Tommy, Ramirez struck out, and you struck out Brian Giles, so kind of a... Nothing to sneeze about there. And, uh, so uh, did I strike out the side? Yeah, yeah. Struck out the side. I, did, I didn't know I've ever done that. Oh, yeah, yeah. In the big leagues. And again, that's a Hall of Famer. And, uh, you know, Manny's... Ramirez yeah. close. And Giles was hilarious. So um, I'd love that's to keep... That's good. You, I'd love to keep you here talking more. Um, I didn't know I, that one. Yeah, yeah. Baseball reference nowadays. It's so nice you can pull this stuff up. And, it's on there, huh? Yeah, yeah. Um, but just any final, um, you know... Thoughts about your, your time in Cleveland, any stories or anecdotes or anything you, you know? No, I, I would just say that, um, you know, Cleveland giving me a chance to play in the major leagues has changed the course of my life, you know, and my three children's lives and, and my wife and, you know, everything we have is as 
a result of Dan O'Brien and Pat Corrales giving me a chance to pitch in the big leagues. And I don't know if another team ever would have. Uh, you know, the Pirates weren't going to. Um, but I got the opportunity. They gave me a year or two to learn a lot and figure a lot of things out. And and my family was born here and raised here. And, and so, yeah, you know, a lot of this era, fans weren't real happy, but they were the best years of my life. I have a lot. I have two more questions. Was Felder around a lot when you were? A lot. Did he ever teach you anything? Loved he, him. Yeah. He was in every day of spring training. He was at every, and the last 20 years I've done the Indians fantasy camp. Um, so I still do stuff with the Indians. And the, these ambassador weekends, they were the Indians then, they're the Guardians now. I get that. I need to do better. I'm speaking at the 455 Club okay. tomorrow formerly known as Chief Wahoo Club. Um, so, um, what was it? What, where did we, oh, yeah. So I've eaten dinner with him. I've driven to speaking engagement. He came to Springfield, Missouri once. I opened indoor batting cages, and in spring training, he came up to me and goes, Bales, I heard you're uh, opening indoor batting cages. I said, yeah. Do you want me to come in for the opening? I thought, yeah, that'd be cool. All you got to do is, uh, I'll stay at your house, but you got to pay my airfare. Deal. So we go through the year. That October, we open batting cages, and you know there was no social media, but a local TV station I had called in NBC and said, "Hey, um, Bob Feller's coming in for my grand opening," and that's the only thing we did advertising. They were wrapped around the building. There were 2,000 people before we opened the doors, all there, not because we were having batting cages, because Bob Feller was in town. And that's when I learned that Bob was a big deal. <laughs> did, and I, I, I said we were done with questions, but real quick, did you have an appreciation for history when you were playing, or was it just like, I'm just trying to stay up here? Like, Yeah, I, I think you're right. I, I didn't have much of an, an appreciation until... My first year, I found out the minimum salary is 60000 I wonder how they came up with that. And then I remember the older guys on the team, like Andre Thornton, they were giving us a lot of grief because it had just gone from thirty-five to sixty. And they go, you're making sixty grand, you're a rookie. Um, and they, they were making thirty-five, Or 10 years earlier, they were making 20000 a year. So I started learning that. Then I became a player rep when I was in California, learning about arbitration and free agency rules and um, the things that Satchel Page did, you know, uh, and the innings he pitched. I've read a couple books of his. Um, he was pitching at, at times 600 innings a year. Between even Major League Baseball, he'd still do barnstorming to help pay the bills and do Negro Leagues, and he was pitching six to 650 innings a year for decades. It was, it's an amazing story. So I, the more, and then Dave Winfield was on my team in California, and I, on a lot of long flights, I'd sit by him, and he had a lot of knowledge about free agency because Steinbrenner and him went to court over, you know, contract labor negotiations and trying to back out of some commitments. And um, so yeah, I, it took some time, but I, I really, 
began to appreciate. And then I got to play with Phil Necro and Steve Carlton, the best knuckleballer in the history of baseball, and to this day, arguably the best left-handed pitcher in the history of baseball. Not just in our era, but of all time. I mean, those two guys. So, yeah, history became more important year after year. You've been listening to Cleveland's Team, a baseball history podcast with Guardians team historian Jeremy Fedor.